welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 83, Conrad II, getting it back into the family. Uh, so I do apologize for this one being late. Uh, work has been a little bit crazy for me. Uh, next month is probably also going to be a little bit behind schedule too. I'm hoping it won't be, but we'll just have to see. Uh, March is just a crazy month for me personally. Uh, other than that, uh, thank you all for the wonderful emails I've been getting. Uh, it's great to see so many of you doing your own research, especially family-related. Uh, if you have any questions on archives or books to read and so forth, please feel free to reach out. I'd love to help you as much as I can. I'm very interested to, to hear the stories of your own families. It's amazing when I receive these emails. It always brings a nice light to my day and just gives me a nice little motivation to keep going. So thank you all so much for reaching out and letting me know how much you enjoy the show and how um, y'all are looking to your own past about Germany. Okay, so let's get back into our story. Last time we dealt with Henry the Troublesome's kid, who was also named Henry, and the end of the dynasty. Well, again, you could argue that the dynasty ended before that Henry because he wasn't really part of the original branch but a lot of historians say no 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 he's the end of the Altonian dynasty now we move on to the next one and yes you can make that argument however I would also argue that Henry was an oddball that got thrown in there and Conrad is a continuation of the Altonian it's just through a different branch of the Altonian dynasty than the original one similar to what would happen with the French after the fall of the Bourbons, and they put in the Orleans. It's still the same family, it's just a different branch of said family. Now, unlike the Orleans, uh, this family under Conrad is going to last uh, more than one generation, and more than a few decades. And so, let us get into how Conrad II will come into power. First of all, we need to establish who is Conrad. Who is this guy? Where is he coming from? Conrad is actually really closely related to the kings before Henry. They would have been his uncles. Problem for Conrad was that he was not a son of a son. He was a son of a daughter. Under Salic law, which is the current laws of the Holy Roman Empire at the time, women were not given any rights to property or to titles. Now there are the occasional uh, cases where they did have control of the property. They were literally like the last members of the family that could control the property. But even then, they had a lot of restrictions and limitations on that. So if you're the firstborn son, whether or not you're the second or the third child of that family, you will get the lion's share of the titles and the properties. If you're the firstborn child, but you are the daughter, well, you're just out of luck and you have to hope that you're going to marry into property and wealth. And this was the case for Conrad. His mother was the daughter of Otto I, making Conrad a grandson, but not the correct grandson for gaining any titles. And so he had been shuffled off to the side. German law, or Salic law, as I should say, was very much against women on most of these issues. If you wanted to have 
any representation in court for your own property. You always have to have a male guardian there representing you, even in cases of widows where finding such male counselorship could be very difficult. But a lot of them were just straight up banned from owning any property. If you had property, it immediately went to the closest living male relative. So property and titles that were in the hands of men were passed on to the hands of men. And daughters, well, if they got any land, it would go straight to their husbands, who honestly should have their own land and shouldn't need any of the family's property. So the daughters should be taken care of by that. Unless it was just a really terrible match. Now, if somehow the daughters did get land transferred over to them, well, as I said, it belongs to the husband now, and it will go down the husband's line at that point. Now, there are rare cases, especially higher up, uh, where they could have some land for themselves, but it was usually for taking care of their children until they came over age, and then as soon as they did, the oldest son would start managing the property. So, Conrad II, out of the running for being emperor, it seemed. Still, with the death of Henry, the idea of him becoming king no longer seemed improbable. Because Henry, as you remember from our last episode, had no children. And so, it meant that they were going to have to go and look for another relative of some sort to take the throne. And once he became king of the Germans, then he could become king of the Italians, and then, hey become the Holy Roman Emperor, as everyone had done before him. So, who was Conrad before he became king? Well, Conrad was born in the early 990s. He was the child of Adelaide and Count Henry of Speer. He was destined to be a minor player in the empire as a child of the Count and as such had very little done education-wise to prepare him for anything greater than countship. That being said, he did have quite the ego, and he did have quite the ambition, both of which were going to play well for him. Now, he could have, if he wanted, retired happily in court, lived a great, wonderful, boring, rich life because of his family connections, which we'll talk about later in the episode. Just so you know, he's related, though, to the Holy Roman Emperor and another king. But this Conrad was not happy just settling as what as he was. And so, when it came time to marry, he wasn't looking for love, passion, or easiness. He was looking for connections, no matter the cost. And so... He marries Duchess Giselle of Swabia, the twice-widowed woman who has actually been dancing around the story for the past two episodes. If you remember back to last year, when we talked about Henry II having some competition to become king of the Germans before he even dreamed of becoming emperor, one of those competitions was Duke Herman II of Swabia, the father of Giselle. Her mother was Gerberga of Burgundy and was the daughter of Conrad of Burgundia, the king. Hermann had failed in his attempts to defeat Henry and died a year later in 1003 
after Henry had been crowned king. Giselle had married that same year, but her husband passed away seven years later. Uh, So she married again, who he died again, uh, leaving her with two kids and also control of the Duchy of Swabia. Now, this control of the territory was only because her children were of age and her older brother, who was the duke at the time, had died. And so she was left in care of the kids and the territory. With the passing of the second husband and the brother, it meant that Giselle, with two kids, now had Swabia and the old count's territory of Badenburg to keep in their trust and needed another man to represent her. Conrad and her met, and it was not love that was the priority, of course, but her land and the possibilities of a future. So Conrad's hopes were to become stepfather to these two kids, have them as his wards, raise them up, and control their lands until, of course, they came of age. Now, these lands didn't have to necessarily stay in the hands of these children if time um, proved to be against them. But still, it seemed that that was his plan for now. But there was a lot of issues with this relationship. First of all, Conrad was known to be very ambitious, and everyone knew this. And they saw him marrying this widow, who had two territories underneath her belt, as a major threat. Especially the people around Henry, the current emperor. Henry, remembering not only that Conrad could be a problem in the future, if um, he decided to threaten the throne, but also that his new wife was the daughter of one of his previous opponents to the throne, and sussed out that this was a attempt to overthrow him. And so he struck at the marriage twice. First, he struck at the children, saying that they were not going to be the wards of Conrad, but instead would be raised by the church. He gave the children to the Archbishop of Trier, rather than allowing Conrad to raise them. There they would be kept safe, away from Conrad, and wait till the day that they could take over the territory. The second strike was at the marriage itself. Conrad had played a huge risk in marrying Giselle, not just because she was a widow, not just because she had her own kids, but because they were actually related. They are on the third and fourth cousinship line in the relations, which at the time was considered forbidden by the church. Yes, I know intermarriage between kings and dukes, that's going to be becoming really popular, but at this time it's still a big no-no. And so when the two went through with the marriage, Henry struck against it and exiled Conrad, hoping that pushing him out of the court would keep him from causing any trouble. Now, Conrad would actually serve his exile quietly. He realized that now was not the time to strike out at Henry, and he saw that Henry didn't have any kids of his own, and figured, why rock the boat when the boat could become his in a couple years? And so he and his brand new wife left court, and they would actually go and have their own child uh, named Henry III, naming him after the current emperor in order to hopefully patch things up between Conrad and Henry. 
This and Conrad's continual obedience to the new emperor saw him gain grace from Henry II and would be able to come back to court eventually. Took him time, but he did come back eventually. Now, while he was in exile, he did stay in Burgundy, meeting his and his wife's relatives, uh, both of them about the same level of relations to the Burgundians. But now he was back home in Germany. Coming back to the empire, Conrad was prepared to retire with his wife, enjoying their wealth and just waiting the days away. Yeah, no. Definitely not what he had in planned. He was waiting and waiting. And eventually, he got the news that he had been waiting for so patiently. Henry II had died. And there was going to be a gathering of German princes at Kamba in September of 1024. Conrad was going to make sure that he was there for that. So, Conrad shows up at this gathering at Kamba and finds out that uh, he is on the short list for consideration because Henry has no close relatives, which means that they are opening up the search for the next king and future emperor based on the, the tree, and Conrad is technically on that tree. But he's not the only one on that list. One of the more important contenders on that list is his own cousin, Conrad, which we're going to start calling Conrad the Younger because he is younger than our Conrad. Now, there are several other members of the Altanian dynasty that are being considered, but in the end, it comes down to our Conrad and Conrad the Younger. Both of them were descendants of Otto I, and both were the closest familiar-wise to the old dynasty. Now, originally, Conrad the Younger was actually picked for probably going to be the winner. Uh, he had quite a bit of support in the beginning. He had the favor of the Duchy of Lorraine and the Duke of Saxony. Though Saxony quickly turned against him and decided to go completely neutral in this case. They just didn't want to get involved. But there were two things that were working against the younger one and would eventually win out for our Conrad. Number one. Conrad had not been heavily involved in many of the politics of the kingdom. Because of his exile and because of his uh, distance that he kept away from the court in order to please Henry, he was not a known threat. He was not seen as a uh, big contender. He was seen as someone that, yes, had ambitions, but hadn't chosen sides and so could easily talk to several different camps about future politics, future policies, future relationships. So Conrad the Older, he had a future to him that wasn't set down by his past. People could see what they wanted to see in our Conrad. Conrad the Younger had been more involved in politics. Everyone knew where he stood. Everyone knew who his friends were. And so if you were in that friend group, you had a better chance of working it out with Conrad the Older than the young guy. The second thing that really helped out our Conrad was that he had a kid, Henry III. Conrad the Younger did not have children at this point, and that was a big issue because no one wanted to come back and do this all over again. 
They also didn't want to have to deal with succession wars all over again. And so they wanted someone who had a future ahead of them, who not only was going to live a while, but also had someone to secure the throne after they passed. And Conrad the Older, he had a kid that was well past the risk of dying age. So when it came time to vote, the president of the assembly, Archbishop Erebo, along with many of his fellow clerics, voted in favor of Conrad, and our Conrad, I should say, in hopes of drawing a better relationship with the favored leader and in trade for <clears throat> special privileges and donations. They were followed by the majority of the dukes and formed a healthy majority for our dear Conrad. Though there were a few that failed to support him, including the dukes of Lorraine, both upper and lower, and several members of the church. Now, Conrad II is going to be crowned king. No one is going to fight him on that. Because even though several people did not vote for our Conrad to become the king of the Germans, and there was still Conrad the Younger out there waiting to make his claim, our Conrad went around shaking all their hands and making promises, giving them whatever they wanted in trade for them not to resist him becoming crowned king of the Germans. This is a very powerful move by Conrad II, and a very dangerous one, because while he buys himself momentary peace, he only builds up anger every single day he fails to meet those promises, whatever they may be. And so we will have to see whether or not Conrad II is actually able to keep those promises. But that's for the future. For now, we're at the coronation. Conrad is crowned by Archbishop Erebo, who is very pleased at being selected randomly to be crowning the king. However, even though he's okay with crowning the new king, he refuses to crown the queen Giselle. Again, blaming the marriage, saying that they're too closely related for it to be good in the eyes of God. Now, this may be shocking to you, saying, wait, I thought these two were working together. You just said that he agreed, nudge, nudge, wink, wink with Conrad. But Erebo and Conrad were on the same mind on this one. This wasn't a move against one another. This was a play against someone else. Because Conrad and Erebo were using this in order to get someone else that had voted against him, Archbishop of Cologne, to support the new king. And so while Erebo really didn't have any issues with Giselle, he did this publicly in order to allow Archbishop of Cologne to come and say, hey, wait, no, I'll crown the queen. I'll do that. I have no problem with that, your highness, and gain favor with the king and get him in the king's pocket. It was a brilliant move by both Conrad and Erebo. Right after the coronation, newly crowned Conrad II commissioned the Spear Cathedral. And six years later, construction will actually begin under Archbishop Erebo, who probably took just a bit off the top for himself, you know, having to keep up appearances and keep the place nice and holy. But still, he did a very beautiful job. That cathedral is a wonder to look at. 
If you've not seen pictures of the cathedral, I recommend that you go and Google it right now. That is S-P-E-Y-E-R Cathedral. It is a very ambitious project. Took 31 years to complete. That meant neither Conrad nor his son would live to see its completion. A little spoiler alert there, but still, took quite a while to finish. Uh, it is made of red sandstone from the Palatine Forest and would serve as the burial place for eight emperors and kings. And while no longer looking like the original finished project in 1061, it has survived all the chaos of German history and still is a beautiful landmark today. So, while this project is being planned and funded, Conrad is looking over the rest of his empire and saw several major issues. First, he's not an emperor yet. He's got to fix that. Second, there is a growing group of resistance in his kingdom who have been offering a lot of problems for the emperor because, well, first, he's not emperor yet. And second of all, he hasn't been paying back all those uh, handshakes he gave out uh, when he got coronated. Now, in order to fight off this threat, Conrad does a great campaign of going out, meeting his nobles, talking to them, shaking their hands again, confirming that he's going to keep his promises where he can. And this works with most of his nobles. He talks to the Saxons, the Bavarians, and the Eastern Dukes, and they all gladly agree to give the king more time. That yes, he's just on the throne. He's still working on it. We've seen what you've done with the church. It's doing much better. It's working well with us. We'll give you the time you need. But not everyone actually enjoyed this tour because in early 1026, the French are going to get a call from the Lorraine duchies to come in and fight Conrad. And our promise that Actually, it's not just going to be us Lorraine duchies. Uh, all of Germany is really mad at this new king. We want him out. Come help us overthrow him. It will be great. Everyone will join in. And so the French are like, yeah, okay, we'll buy it. We'll go, we'll go help you. And so the Lorraine duchies launched the rebellion, expecting all of their fellow grumblers to come join him. And no one does. The French show up look around and like, um, I thought you said there was going to be more, you guys. And there's just this awkward silence of, yeah, we thought so too, but, um, yeah, no one's coming. It's just us. And so uh, the Lorraine Dukes and the French are pretty quick to jump ship. Um, the Lorraines are just devastated at this they had been building up this idea in their head they had been planning this rebellion they got the french involved that was amazing but now the french are leaving them no one else is joining in absolutely no one else is joining in it's time to give up the ghost now france is going to have several issues at home dealing with the weak king with Odo of champagne we'll deal with him later on in our story too and so they're not going to get involved either after seeing the lackluster call and so conrad just sees this happen acknowledges that whatever this was was a blatant failure and treats it as a victory which he should it was a victory for him now france is going to come back and they're going to be a pain in germany's butt but 
For now, it's a win for Conrad. Now, with this failed rebellion behind him, Conrad goes and works on Italy because he's got to be crowned emperor. This is an ambitious man. Even though he's got the land he wants, he's going to have to go deal with Italy because he wants that imperial crown. Now, Henry II has spent a lot of time in that territory when he was emperor, building it up, creating strong relations with the church, making the church very powerful in Germany because he didn't trust the dukes. But after he died, Italy went into chaos. They were absolutely done with the Holy Roman Empire. I think it was a mutual thing. They destroyed the old palace in Pavia. Uh, they were ready to rout anyone who came in, uh, send them fleeing from the city if they claimed to be part of the empire or supported the empire. None of the Italians were happy being underneath the Holy Roman Empire. And considering the relationship between the two factions, I don't really blame them. The Italian cities were never getting anything great from the empire. And the empire was definitely uh, wasting a lot of time and resources trying to subdue territory that did not want to be subdued. Still, Conrad could not let northern Italy go, nor could he sit around and be just king of the Germans. He needed that imperial crown. And he needed to move fast because he heard that the Italians were now calling for new kings of Italy. First, they made appeals to the French. The French said, no, don't blame him for that. And then they sent out a request to William of Aquitaine to become their new king. And William said, Okay, yeah, I'll be on my way. Now, this all started in 1026 when nobles came to Conrad. These are Italian nobles. And said, hey, we're just going to split Italy away from the empire. Is that cool? We know you got your things up in Germany. You're busy up there. You're dealing with all this internal issues. We're just going to take Italy and we're going to leave. And Conrad said, I don't think so. And immediately said, Okay, the regions in revolt, we're going to have to put it down. There was just no separating the Germans and the Italians under Conrad. And he moved quickly, gathering a large army, moving south, and actually retook Pavia before they could put up strong resistance. And then moved on down to Milan, besieging it and gaining the crown of Italy in March of 1026. So in like January, these nobles show up, and by March... Conrad has restored control over northern Italy. In the summer, he marches south and receives Pope John XI, who crowned him emperor the next year. And then received word that uh, Milan had fallen. So everything went great with his Italian campaign. He's gotten himself crowned as emperor, March 1027, by the way. He has secured northern Italy. He has defeated any attempts to replace him as the king of the Italians. And he's gotten himself crowned as such. Pretty, pretty good two years for him. Now, the really special thing about his coronation in March 1027 as the Holy Roman Emperor is that there's a special guest there at the bequest of Conrad II. And that is one Canute of England who at this time is king of two kingdoms in England and is about to be on his way to have a third. Now, if you know your English history, you know a lot about Canute. If you know your Danish history, you know quite a bit about Canute. 
Uh, if you don't, I highly recommend going and looking him up. Um, we're not going to spend any time here on him, but he is an important character in history, and he becomes a very important friend of Conrad's. So the two uh, meet at this uh, coronation. He had been invited by Conrad, and they hit it off really well. They form a growing friendship. It's going to actually last their entire lives, uh, and they're going to intermarry their families to one another with Gunhild, the daughter of Canute, marrying Henry, the next in line for the throne. Now that Conrad is emperor, he did what was common, very common for the Altonian dynasty, and spent some time in Italy dealing with, with that land instead of, you know, Germany, which had officially elected him rather than him having to force himself upon them. However, he would have to quickly turn around and go back to Germany because not everything was great there. Because one of his old buddies, Ernest Aswabia, had stabbed him in the back in the summer of 1027. It turned out that he, along with Conrad the Younger, our good old should-have-been-emperor, had tried to raise a rebellion in hopes of quickly gathering supporters and forming a stronghold in Swabia before Conrad had even received news while he was in Italy. But Conrad moved lightning quick. Just like he did with the Italian campaign, he gathered his troops, he marched north, and reappeared back in Swabia before Ernest and Conrad could gather too many allies. This ended the rebellion rather fast because neither one were prepared and it forced Ernest to go to prison while Conrad was stripped of power and then had his best fort raised to the ground uh, just to show that he was not the man that he thought he was. Now, eventually, according to the annals, uh, Ernest would restore his repetition, but for now he has a black mark. You see, what happens is that Ernest was released and would be restored, uh, but in the year 1030, he is ordered by the emperor to pursue uh, one Werner of Freiburg. Uh, now, Werner had rebelled against the emperor's wishes during war. We'll deal with that in a little bit. But he was a very close friend of Ernest, and Ernest just refused to go after him. He refused to uh, attack Werner, especially because he believed that Werner was in the right in this case, that the emperor had made a mistake and should have followed Werner's advice. Now, because of this betrayal, Conrad will uh, get him excommunicated and force him to lose all of his titles and wealth. Uh, Ernst will run for his life at that point, uh, realizing that he is being hunted down uh, by the Emperor's soldiers. Uh, he will put up a fight rather than surrender and will be killed during the fray. Now, Ernst um, is famous in 1800s and 1900s Germany, not because of his rebellions against the emperor, but because of his standing against an oppressive leader who had failed to listen to good advice and had cheated his people. You can tell that there was a certain appeal to Ernst because of the fact that he stood up to the emperor and was proven right for doing so becomes a very interesting character in the 1800s, for sure. Now, why I said that Ernst and Conrad the Younger had not been able to gather too many allies, they did gather one very important ally. 
There was one person that was really hopeful that they could quickly get a rebellion going in Germany. And that was the new king of the Poles. This new king of the Poles was the son of our old king. Um, and he realized that relations between him and the Holy Roman Empire was not going to be anything great. Again, can't really blame him. Henry II had spent most of his time trying to destroy the Poles. Now, they had been able to resist Henry II. And actually, um, in between this episode and last episode, um, while Henry was uh, still ruling, they had actually formed themselves as a kingdom of Poland. Now, this was the son of our previous king. Uh, and he had decided that he needed to do something to make sure that Conrad wasn't going to be able to spend too much time dealing with the Polish question. Because Conrad was making it very clear about the Italian issues, about the dukes in his own land, and about any queries about Poland, that the Holy Roman Empire was the Holy Roman Empire, and it was his domain. Now, unfortunately for the Polish, the rebellion didn't go anywhere, and word quickly spread that the Poles had been a part of this attempt against the empire. And so they realized that, well, war's here now, we gotta deal with it. And so, in 1028, the Polish launched a war and invade the Holy Roman Empire, occupying the far right of the empire's lands. However, Conrad is able to gather an army and invade back in 1029, pushing them back into Poland, and looked like he was about to do what Henry had been unable to do when the Hungarians intervene, allying the Poles and launch their own counter-invasion. Now you're probably going, wait, the Hungarians, where where have they been? What's, why are they showing up now? Well, the Hungarians have been there ever since the Magyars had stopped doing their raiding. And they have been a problem for previous emperors, yes. But under Henry II, they have been made an ally and been allowed to form as a fellow kingdom because... They were frankly not in territory that Henry wanted to deal with. And their new leader was a Christian. And that was something that was important to Henry. He's like, yeah, okay. If you're going to be a Christian leader, then you can become king. You just got to get the rest of your people to become Christian. And so Stephen I, the prince of Hungary, becomes the king of Hungary. And they hit it off really well. Henry II and Stephen I. Stephen marries his sister off to Henry, and they form an alliance, allowing Henry to deal with the Poles and not have to worry about his southeastern border. But Conrad did not have that relationship with Stephen, and again, thanks to his ambition and his bullheadedness, just refused to compromise with Stephen, because Stephen was a king, and even then, a king who probably shouldn't be king. Not in Conrad's eyes. Initially, Conrad had tried to cut Stephen down to size and limit the power of the Hungarian kingdom. At first, this was in the quagmire that was Venice. Uh, we didn't talk about it, but during his invasion of northern Italy, he decided to get involved in the politics of Venice and get rid of the current uh, doge or the current ruler of Venice. This leader was the brother-in-law to Stephen, uh, and it was not 
appreciated at all by Stephen uh, when he found out that his brother-in-law had been kicked out by Conrad. But his complaints were completely ignored by the emperor because you're just a Hungarian, I don't care. Stephen struck back by refusing border access to Conrad's uh, emissaries who were on their way to go talk to the Byzantines and hopefully set up a relationship, build an alliance, and keep uh, Italy from blowing up. This, of course, did not make Conrad happy whatsoever because it's okay if he messes with you, not vice versa. You're not allowed to do that. And so when the Bavarians decided that they were going to raid into the Hungarian land, you know, loot a couple places, cause problems, force the Hungarians to either back off or fight, Conrad didn't do anything. This could have been part of his previous deals with the Bavarian dukes and allowing them to do whatever they wanted to their neighbors to the east. But it was also because Conrad really just was kind of done with Stephen and didn't want to have to deal with him. And so he said, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. I mean, if they get caught in a raid and they get bloodily mauled, it's not his men. Stephen can't come to him and say, hey, these are your soldiers. No, those are some Duke of Bavaria soldiers. I can give him a little reprimand, snap, snap, but, you know, can't blame me. They're not my personal men. And Stephen fumed at this. He was not at all happy that his land was being raided by Holy Roman Imperial troops, even if they were technically Bavarians and not working for the emperor. And so he constantly sent demands to Conrad to do something about this and to stop it. And Conrad just absolutely refused to open those envelopes. He was not going to read that mail. He was not going to respond. But when Conrad got involved in the war with the Poles, well, I guess it was time for Stephen to get some revenge. And so he invaded Bavaria. So, Conrad is caught off guard when Stephen invades Bavaria. I mean, after all, he's just getting rid of those raiders. They're coming from Bavaria. They're not the Empire's troops. So, you know, I'll just go and deal with the problem straight on. And Conrad's, you know, caught off guard. He's like, all right, I got to deal with Stephen first. Then I'll come back to Poland. And so, he devises two important campaigns at this point. First, he will launch a actual physical land campaign into Hungary in order to hopefully bring Stephen to bear. The second one is that he sends emissaries over to the nation of Kiev Rus in order to talk about the Polish problem and hopefully come to terms with them on how to deal with this kingdom that has been a pest to both of them. We haven't really talked about it, but the Poles have been heavily involved in Kiev and Rus's politics, And they were really done with them being involved in their own politics. And they wanted the Poles to be kicked out. So, sounded like a great ally for the Empire when it was time to go back and deal with Poland. But first, they had to deal with Stephen and hopefully defeat him on the field. So, Conrad launches his invasion into Hungary, plundering to his heart's content. He wants to make the Hungarians pay for what they did. But, Stephen is no fool. He knows that his army can't beat Conrad's in open battle. And so he keeps pulling away from fighting, burning the ground, burning the crops, leaving nothing behind for Conrad to take. The emperor is eventually at a point where he can't get 
he can't go forward because he doesn't have the supplies or the willpower to keep going. He's forced to retreat, allowing Stephen to get a victory. Conrad is forced to make peace on the Hungarian turns because he never was able to bring battle and he really needs to go back and deal with the Poles before they come back up and cause him issues. And it was a massive success for the Hungarians. Though the nobles under Stephen's command were a bit miffed that their prized land had been destroyed. Uh, Unfortunately for Stephen, he will not actually really get to enjoy this victory. He won't be celebrating it for too long because his only son will pass away in 1031. Uh, He actually has several sons, most of them, but I'm sorry, not most, all but one pass away in childbirth or in the ages of one and two. And that one surviving son died in 1031, which will leave Hungary in civil wars and constant rebellions uh, over family relations, religions, and who's going to rule as the king of the Hungarians. It's going to be a big issue for Hungary. But after peace has been made between Conrad and Stephen, Conrad is able to move back into Poland, deal with the problem that he originally was trying to deal with. And he launches a devastating campaign in the fall of 1031, working in tandem with the Kievan Rusch. Now, this war was way too much for Poland to deal with. They had been expecting fighting the empire. They were planning to do the same thing the Hungarians did, but that can't work if you have nowhere to retreat to because the Kievan Rusch are coming from the other way. And so after a brief campaign, and I mean a very brief campaign, a treaty is signed, seeing a return of the empire's lands and a very much cowed Poland. The Poles will lose their king. They'll see their old lands divided into three realms, all under the influence of different rulers who are under the thumbs of the Kievan Rus and the Holy Roman Empire. And we'll start a cycle for the poor Polish people That will be a path of division and capulation that will last until the fall of the Soviet Union. It is a problem for the Poles for a long time. They're going to have their ups. They will form Poland, Lithuania, the Commonwealth. They will become a massive kingdom, yes. But this attack from the East and the West, from the Germans and the Rus is the start of a process that will go on until the late 1900s. With this wrapping up, the next big thing for Conrad was Burgundy. See, Burgundy was in need of a king. Going back to Henry II, there had been strong ties between the Burgundians and the emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. Henry was the son of the oldest sister of the King of Burgundy, Rudolf III. When Rudolf wanted to give up the crown because he really didn't want to rule, he wanted it to go to Henry II, believing that he would be a good fit for king. But the Burgundian nobles were kind of used to running things on their own. Rudolf was a pretty terrible king. He had no appeal for it. He didn't really care. He he always was happy to pass it off on others to deal with it. And the nobles had been running things any way they wanted, and were loving it. And so when they heard that Henry II, who was a micromanager compared to Rudolf, 
was going to be given the throne, they said, no, 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 no. We're not signing off on this. And so a war broke out. Now, this war didn't really go anywhere. It wasn't a big part of Henry's time. But eventually it convinced Rudolf to stay on the throne, to backtrack on his offer, and peace to be destroyed. The nobles had their old king back, and Henry, disgusted, gave up on the realm entirely. But when Conrad became emperor, it became very, very clear to Rudolf that Conrad had ideas about his throne. And so he decided he was going to make it clear to the Germans that that was never going to happen. He did not see the secession of his crown passing to Conrad because the offer had been to his cousin, Henry, and not Emperor Henry. And that was very important. It was based off familiar ties and not ties between the heads of states. But this is Conrad we're talking about, and he has no problems making things fit the way he needs to. Conrad moved quickly. And when word reached him that the death of King Rudolf happened in the year 1032, he ordered a diet to form immediately and had that diet make him become king of the Burgundians. Now, a large group did try to get a French noble, Otto of Champagne, elected as king, but Conrad was able to get his election in and turned Otto away to focus on the throne of France. If you want to learn more about Odo, you definitely want to go and listen to the French History Podcast because they are going to be dealing with a lot of Odos over there. Now, the nobles who supported Odo, they tried to hold out for two years, but they were unable to break Conrad's control. And so all of Burgundy was going to be added to the empire. Now, I've been saying Burgundy, 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 but you're probably like, where is this Burgundy? Uh, Burgundy is from Dion in the north, uh, all the way down to Marseille in the Gulf of Lyon. So it is a a large section of modern-day France that is now part of the empire. It is a wealthy territory, and it helps protect some of the empire's choice territories in Italy. Now, while the land is definitely not going to stay with the empire, the title of the land, the King of the Burgundians, will be a title that will stick to the Holy Roman Emperor until the complete collapse of it in the 1800s. With the addition of Burgundy, Conrad is now able to focus on internal politics, promoting a new series of politics that saw power being given to the nobles by making all titles hereditary. Now this was really important because before it was simple for the emperor to choose who's going to be the next duke of this land and so forth. So, you know, I could say, uh, you are currently the duke of Swabia, but you know, I don't really like your son. So he's not going to be the next duke. I want to choose someone else. And so your family didn't have the stability. Now that wasn't always the case. There was a chance that, um, it would just go on with your family. For a lot of people, that would happen. But that stability was false because it was very easy for the emperor to take that land and give it to someone else. But by making the titles hereditary and making it easy to pass from generation to generation, it gave security to the nobles, allowed them to know that 
their land was going to be theirs. The king and the emperor was never going to intervene. Now, if they betrayed the king, if they betrayed the emperor, if they went into rebellion, of course you're going to lose your land. That still stands. But now you don't have to worry about me just not liking the current guy and giving it to someone else. He also spent a lot of time building new churches, including the beautiful cathedral that we talked about earlier. Um, but this time in Germany was not going to last forever because his final years were going to be dominated by the Italians, just like all the previous emperors before him. The reason why he gets dominated in Italy is because of an old friend of his, someone who's been an ally of his since the beginning, since that first meeting to declare him king of the Germans, Archbishop Albert of Milan has decided to go rogue. So Archbishop Albert, old ally of Conrad, he had been the one who crowned him king of the Italians. He had been the one that had been a loyal supporter and advisor since the beginning. He loved Conrad. Conrad loved him. But... Albright was deep inside church politics and church doctrine, and he believed in the teachings of St. Ambrose over what was the current primary teachings of the church. Now, we're not going to talk about the teachings of the Papal States versus St. Ambrose, where was the issues, why was Ambrose heretical. All you got to know is that by choosing to say that the teachings of St. Ambrose was correct and the church was wrong, he was technically heretical, meaning that he was going against the law of the land and the church and was basically trying to get a rebellion started religiously. Now, Albright in Italy had gathered a large gathering in Milan. Everyone was backing him, saying, yes, you're right. St. Ambrose is correct. The church is wrong. We've been looking at this completely wrong. And if any nobles worked against them in Milan... He was able to easily get them knocked off, put into prison, and thrown away. Replacing anyone that wasn't loyal to him and the teachings with those that were. And this meant that a lot of Conrad's loyal supporters were being knocked off because they didn't follow the teachings of St. Ambrose. It was also an issue that the problems of St. Ambrose was seeping into Germany, and it was something that Conrad had crushed because he honestly didn't want to have religious issues in his home territory. It's just not something that he wanted to deal with. So if he caught you um, saying that you weren't following the teachings of the papal church, then he put you down. Just wasn't going to deal with it. And now he's finding out that one of his best friends, one of his closest allies is doing it. You know that's not going to go over well. Upon hearing of the coup against the approved scripture, Conrad announced that, quote, if the Italians were thirsting for laws, I will immerse them in them, end quote. So, Conrad gathered an army and he marched south. At first, he called on his old ally, Aberite, and said, hey, I want you to put those nobles that you have taken off their uh, territory, put them back in charge, renounce these terrible teachings, accept what the church has decided is true, and, and just let's put this to an end. 
Now, Albright felt betrayed by Conrad. He had seen it that, you know, yes, you're the king of the Italians, but you're not going to really get involved in church issues. And he saw this as purely a church issue. And so when he found out that Conrad was against them, and also that he was supposed to get rid of everything that he'd done, well, clearly Conrad was uh, A, insane, and B, no longer his friend. And so he rejected Conrad said, no, no more. We're done. And he left Conrad before he could be put into prison because you don't tell the emperor no. So Abrat refused and he fled back to Milan and he gathered an army, raising it out of religious followers, um, gathering a large mutinous force that started to spread into the countryside. And a new rebellion in Italy had begun. So Conrad did what Conrad does best. He launched his army rather quickly into Italy and he laid siege to the city, resulting in a lot of loss of life in Milan and forced Arbeit to flee. Running again, Arbeit decided that, no, this is no more just a religious issue. This is an issue of politics. The emperor does not belong in control of Italy. The Italian states, they need a new king, probably French. And so he announced a war to free all of the Italian lands free against the German emperor, free against the tyranny of the northerners, and bring in a new king. Again, probably French. And they do reach out and they, hey, they do get a new French king. Uh, Odo, our good friend Odo, who has been here for uh, two other coups against Conrad. Well, now he's here again. And they're like, hey, would you like to become king of the Italians? And Odo, apparently not really reading his history about the Italian city-state, said, yes, I'll be your king. And he marches there with a small army. However, he does have to go through uh, the Holy Roman Empire to get there first. Now, when word spread that Odo was going to join uh, and become their king, this caused quite a few Italians to join the rebellion. And Arbeit seemed to be on his way to making quite uh, the rebellion. But fate worked against them because Odo, on his way to Italy to become crown king, is slain in a minor skirmish. Just a random casualty. And they've lost their king. They've lost the one person that was supposed to unite all of northern Italy into a new kingdom. And with his death came the death of the rebellion. Arbut was unable to keep the flames lit and watched as his fellow Italians abandoned him to the emperor's wrath. There was no point in fighting if there's no king. There was no one to rally to. What happens even if we do win? What do we do after that? He'll just come back and wait till we're weak. No, we're not going to fight this. The only ones to remain loyal to Arbit was Milan. who just absolutely refused to abandon their bishop. They held out long past the life of Conrad. And even when in 1038 uh, Arbit was excommunicated, they continued to back their religious leader. Now, Conrad at this point was happy that the big threat to his realm, Odo, was dead. 
Italy wasn't going to go in rebellion. Now it was just pesky Milan and this one turbulent priest that was causing problems. And frankly, he could care less about him. Italy was not the place he wanted to be. He wanted to be back home. And so leaving a small force to besiege Milan, making sure that they stayed inside their city and just wait them out until they gave up the ghost, Conrad went home. And in the year 1039, he made it back to Germany just in time to die of gout. He was taken and buried in the still-being-built Spear Cathedral. And he can be found there today in the crypts. Conrad was an ambitious man. Very much so. He was very strong-headed. If he wanted something, he would do anything to get it done. Whether it was to become emperor or to marry his own cousin, he was going to get it done. He was ambitious as all get out. He was the first in a while to expand the empire with the claim of Burgundy being secured and making sure the Poles were back under his thumb. He did amazing thing of not getting stuck in Italy, a plague that had been an issue for all of his predecessors in the Autonian dynasty. He just absolutely refused to be stuck there, even to complete a campaign. He didn't want to stay in Italy if he didn't have to. He wanted to be back in Germany because, A, he had to make sure that things were running smoothly back in his home territory, and B, Italy was just a pain in the butt for him. It wasn't worth it. For him, the lands to the east and west of Germany were more important. Under Conrad, we also saw a change in politics around the empire. And we saw a change in dynasties and neighbors in the empire. With the French starting to gain their feet again, becoming a threat to the Holy Roman Empire's external and internal issues. We saw Hungary. We saw the English kingdoms. And we've seen the Kiev Rus show up. All of them becoming major players in the diplomacy of the Holy Roman Empire. Before it had always been the Byzantines, the French sometimes, and the Poles still rather recently, but had been a while, been around for a while. The world around the HRE was changing, and Conrad had attempted to ignore it and failed with Poland and Hungary. Overall, Conrad is seen as a successful emperor, though not one without issues. He, however, did solve one of the biggest issues of the empire, and that was succession. Because there's not going to be a succession crisis after his passing. So join us next time as we deal with this in Henry III, the first king for the first time in a long time that has no one trying to fight him for his claim 